Welcome to CPP Chat, not the only podcast for C++ developers by C++ developers. Um, before we continue, I'd like to read this week's disclaimer. No employee of CPP Chat has the authority to conclude any binding contract without explicit written consent of their supervisor. Therefore, any will to enter in an agreement must be confirmed by that employee's manager. So, uh, with me today, uh, as always, is my fellow host and the show's producer, Phil Nash. How are you this week, Phil? Well, I'm pretty good, thanks, John. Uh, actually, a bit rushed because I've been out with the family at the beach today and uh, we have to rush back through traffic. So um, I've got a little bit of the sun here. I was going to say, you look like you've got a little bit of sun, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, my wife and I spent this last week, we spent a few days down in, in uh, Santa Cruz, so we got a little bit of sun ourselves. Ah, uh, anyway, we, uh, we have two guests that have some opinions about C++ and the C++ uh, community. So I'd like to introduce Phil Williams. Phil is a director and principal software engineer at uh, Avetasoft and is a resident of New Zealand. But more importantly for today's discussion, Phil is the organizer of Pacific++. Welcome, Phil. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Interesting to be here. All right. Um, so you have just wound up your uh, call for submissions, right? The deadline for that is now passed. Uh, yes. So all the submissions are in and the speakers are about to be announced this week. Um, what's what's going to be announced? The schedule uh, or the, just the acceptance? Uh, the, yeah, the acceptance of who's speaking. Okay. All right. That's what. Uh, that's where we are with CPPCon. We are on uh, the schedule says that we will announce tomorrow who has been accepted. Well, we don't announce that publicly. We we inform them uh, who's been accepted. We haven't actually completed that decision yet. So I feel guilty about taking time off to do the show. But <laughs> there you go, because <laughs> that needs to be wound up. Um, yeah. So our uh, our other guest today uh, is someone who's been on the show before. So we're welcoming back Robert Ramey. Robert Ramey uh, owns his uh, own consulting company in Southern California, and he created the Boost Incubator and is author of Boost Serialization. Um, I love to have Robert on because uh, his ability to rant rivals my own, and so that's what the show is about, is seeing if we can get the guests to rant. <laughs> you know, I have a feeling I only get invited when you can't find someone else. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that way at all. It's more like I love having Robert on, but I don't want to go to the well too often. I don't want, you know, I don't want him to feel like he, he has to rant on cue. Are you feeling like ranting? Today? Are you a ranty mood? Um, you know, I kind of, I kind of resent the characterization <laughs> of rant. You know, I think if people do it all the time. I think it's way unfair. I wish I wouldn't do it, and really just get off my case and let me run my life. <laughs> so is this um, a meta rant? A meta rant, a rant about rants. <laughs> um, no, I, I was just noticing. I, unfortunately, I wasn't really able to participate much, but there was a huge discussion on the boost channel on uh cpp lang i think it was mostly yesterday but maybe it actually started the day before there was a lot of uh discussion about boost um the situation with boost and um maybe there should be changes to uh what we are doing both for boost and also for the standard um one of the things one of the statements that's been made a few times and i think it's a little bit controversial by some people but they, they say that it's easier to get something into the standard than it is to get it into boost and I think that is not, I mean, that can be seen as a criticism of Boost, how hard it is to get something into Boost. But I think it's a criticism of the standard, because if the bar to get something into Boost is higher than it is to get it in the standard, that's a problem for the standard. That means that we're accepting things that have not been vetted as well as they should be. At least it seems that way to me. Um, and I think other people were kind of expressing that on the uh, on the list. Am I wrong about that, Robert? I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth. Well, I think, I mean, you could, I think that's one small aspect of it, but I think the larger question, which is, at least on my mind, and I don't think I'm alone on this, uh, things are, uh, we're kind of lost. You know, Boost is sort of a victim of its own success when a large part got incorporated into the standard, and then it became a little unclear what, you know, the role of Boost would be in the future. And then the standard itself, uh, Bjorn made a, a uh, posted it, which was on Reddit, a characterization of all the proposals. And there's like 
the proposals for the next meeting to be discussed, it's like a, a number like 50 or a number like a large number. And he felt that uh, the thing was just scaling. It was, wasn't scaling. I, I, I don't know. I want to put words in his mouth, but he expressed reservations that this thing is kind of getting out of hand as far as the number of proposals and, you know, maybe we should think about that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm really, I'm totally mischaracterizing her, uh, what he said, but he expressed, at least reflected my view, that the standard process is going to have to somehow change or be updated to address the current new reality. And of course, that's like a fertile topic of huge discussion of which I have a point of view and lots of other people have the view that nothing should change. So that's kind of, that's kind of where we are on that. It comes up from time to time, but generally speaking, no progress is ever made. So a few years ago, Herb gave this talk about how C++ is way, way behind other languages in terms of library. The amount of, it's hard to quantify what that means, but but he was using just the number of pages in the standard and the number of pages of the description of the library. And Java has a lot more library than um, C++, um, Go, a number of languages. And at that time, what he was what he was claiming he was going to work on, and I assume he worked on it, I just don't think anything came of it. But what he wanted to do was to go, he said, you know, we don't have a standard library for XML. We don't have a, a standard library for HTML or HTTP, um, none of these things do we have standards for, whereas other libraries, Python, you know, you can do all those kinds of things very easily in Python. And what he said is, there are C++ libraries for that. They're, you know, large companies and sometimes small companies are doing these kinds of things in C++. So he was going to try to get those companies to donate their libraries, at least the interface to their libraries, uh, to the standard so that they could be standardized. I don't think anything came of that. I don't think there was a single large library that came of that. But at the time, I remember kind of cheerleading for that. So, yeah, that's what we should do. I should be able to sit down at my C++ compiler and be able to say, here's the URL of a file. Uh, go pull that file in, parse it, uh, pull out the images, or or do something interesting with it, or submit a text file, uh, submit um, a table, uh, not a table, but a form or something like that. And I should be able to do that with the standard. And that sounded great at the time, but I think I've kind of started to rethink some of that, partly because of the 2D graphics library, but maybe there's some other things too. And I think one of the reasons I've rethought this is because a point you've made, Robert, which is that if we have a large library that, such as a boost library like ASIO, um, why does it need to be in the standard? It's implemented. It's available widely. Um, what is the benefit to to spending a lot of resources on the part of all the, the library developers um, from Clang, GCC, and uh, Microsoft to have them essentially re-implement an, an existing library? Um, where's the value of that? It, that's a very expensive thing for them to do. They could be working on bugs in their libraries or optimizations or anything like that. And instead, they're all going to try to re-implement a library that already is implemented once and has a you know single source base that can be used. There will be some advantages, no doubt, uh, with that re-implementation, but it's a very expensive process. And I'm not sure that we as a community are getting much for it. Did I represent your opinion well there, Robert, or not? Yeah, I think it, that, well, that was, that was, you know, that, that was dead on of what my point was. I think there's a lot more to it, but the, the, it's just senseless to me. We go around and tell people, you know, you shouldn't re make your own version of optional or whatever because it's already in boost and now it's on the standard. And yet the standard committee does the same thing. So they've taken a a ASIO and they say, oh, well, we're going to make a better, quote, version. Ah, damn, you know, it really needs executors. So now we're going to redesign that. And, you know, they're spending committee time by the ton. And once they get it done, uh, then somebody's going to have to re-implement it at, at, at Clang and Microsoft. It just seemed totally senseless to me. And especially, it's not like the committee and these guys got nothing else to do. 
I got a list, you know, if they're interested. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, uh, as I say, I think this really, if we step back, uh, it raises a big question about where the committee's efforts should be focused. And uh, I think that that question has come up now that it's, it's the list of things to consider is, is frankly ridiculously long. Uh, the process is in scaling. I, I believe we're coming to a point when we're going to start really talking about what the what the committee should focus on and what it should decide to just uh, leave out. Um, I, think, I think we've lost your video, Robert. Um, I don't know if you're. I'll re-log in into the Google okay. Hangout. Well, let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about conferences. We have someone uh, on the chat today who is running a conference whose name is Phil. Oh wait, we have two people whose name is Phil, who are running conferences. <laughs> um, Jens and I are going to have to get together and officially announce our name change, I think, at some point, And we'll both be known as Phil. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's been um, on the cards for a while. But, uh, Phil, uh, you've, you're working on your second iteration of yours. So, well, we haven't had you on since, since you did the first one. You want to tell us a little bit about uh, Pacific Plus Plus? Uh, yep. Well, I guess... Um... I guess the story goes back to when I first started, um, I was introduced to the Going Native conferences in 2012-2013, and I sort of watched a few of those and thought there was a whole lot of good information and stuff you can take out of that to sort of get ahead at your work, and then it sort of played out for a few years and CPPCon came around, and I sort of noticed there was not one over the side of the world, so I thought, I'll give it a go, it's something to do, and... That, that's basically how it started. Yeah. Um, it must have been somewhat successful because you're going to do it again. Yeah, so I think it turned out all right. Uh-huh. Everyone seemed happy about it. So I thought so this you... time, yeah, moving to a bigger city with a lot a lot more people around makes sense because Christchurch is pretty out of the way. So you did the first one in New Zealand, in Christchurch. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. And this year it's going to be... Um, in Australia and in Sydney. Yeah. Is Sydney correct. the largest city in Australia? I'm, I'm not sure population-wise, but I know it's definitely one of the biggest. And sure. There's yeah. a massive a lot of technology going on there. Okay. All right. Um, so uh, so is that a is that going to change the nature of the conference for people who attended last year? Is it uh, is it going to be different because it's in Australia, or is it going to be the same good conference just in a different location? I think it will be very similar to the one before, just okay. different location. All right. Um, have you announced keynotes? Uh, yes, keynotes have been announced. All right. Uh, and who? Sean Parrott and Titus Winters. Very good, yes. <laughs> um, I'm jealous already. <laughs> um, but you do kind of have the, the Pacific to yourself. Um, there's one conference in Beijing, but other than that, you're absolutely right. There's... There's nothing on this side of the world. Um, it's so unlike Europe, where it seems like every country has its own conference. Um, how do you feel about that, Phil? You seem to be uh, launching a conference in an area where there's lots of conferences. There are, but uh, most of the conferences in Europe, um, obviously other than meeting C++, uh-huh. I tend to be sort of fairly smaller, uh, small and focused on, on the local area, uh-huh. often local language. Um, sometimes with an international track, mm-hmm. which is not to take away from any of those conferences. I've been to one or two of them, and they're, they're great. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd actually encourage people to to visit them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, what I wanted to build was uh, was an international conference. Uh, we also have the ACCU conference in the UK, mm-hmm. which is also a great conference. What always been one of my favourite conferences. And if if there's anyone listening that's not been to the ACCU conference but could go, definitely recommend you go, you go to that one as well. Uh, but the one difference there is that. The ACCU is not a pure C++ conference, mm-hmm. although it has a very strong C++ content. Um, usually mm-hmm. um, two of the five tracks are dedicated to, to C++. Uh, but I, I really wanted something that was focused purely on C++. So one thing that I learned about ACCU, so I went the first time this year, as you know, because you saw me there. Um, yeah. I had been... My understanding was that that there was an awful lot of non C++ content, which which there is. But what I didn't fully appreciate is that most of that content is slanted at C++ 
developers. In other words, someone might do a Ruby talk or something like that, but they'll basically say, this is what a C++ programmer wants to know about Ruby. So it is, in a sense, a, a very much still a conference for C++ programmers. There's enough non-C++ content that it's interesting for people who maybe used to be C++ developers and done other stuff. And they, I think that's what a lot of the attraction at ACCU is. But yeah. I learned a little bit about kind of what the orientation is. Um, it's still very uh, feels like the people attending are C++ engineers and such as that. Welcome back, Robert. We can see you now. I'm, I'm no, I've been here. I just uh, wasn't visible. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm always present, but never seen. <laughs> Your godlike qualities, huh? <laughs> always watching. Have you ever attended any of the uh, conferences in Europe, Robert? Uh, no, I never have. So my, my wife is from Germany, so I have I you know I could go, but uh, it's pretty expensive for me, and I'm not really that motivated. <laughs> so it's a good time to mention that the um, the call for papers for uh, C++ on C is still open. So if you want us a bit of talk to that, Robert, uh, you'll get your expenses covered. Well, I don't know. We'll see. I, I still I'm still pending my result, my submission to CPPCon. I, I don't know if that's going to get accepted. It, it's been re rejected in the past, so I, I don't know if uh, maybe this time will work. But we'll see. Um, you know, I, everybody needs an excuse to go to Europe. <laughs> well, I think being married to a European is a pretty good excuse by itself. But but being able to attend uh, C++ on C is also a good a good yeah. reason. <clears throat> I will say, because we are going to have an awful lot of people we're going to say no to, that that being rejected at at um, at CPPCon is um, we're going to have a lot of people doing that or being in that situation, and I want to encourage people to submit again. Uh, the The quality of the submissions we get keeps going up and up, and I think part of it is because. When people are accepted, they learn more about the process. But I think even for people who are submitting the first time, they've been looking at CPPCon videos. Um, they've been looking at the abstracts other people have written. And, they, and so the abstracts we get, we're getting are better and better. And so the, what that means is, I mean, it's, I think it's good for people attending the conference and people watching the videos. But from the submitter's side, what that means is that we're saying no to a lot of really good submissions. And, you know, my joke has always been um, that I cry myself to sleep when we send out uh, when we send out the notices because we do say no to an awful lot of really good submissions. And I, I don't want people to get discouraged if your submission is not accepted this year. Um, it could just be, you know, we have an awful lot of people on the committee and they get randomly assigned and you might get people who don't really appreciate what you wanted to talk about. That's possible. Is this, also, a, is this the first person, second person you, or is this the generalized you? Oh, I'm not directing it to you, Robert. I haven't looked at, I haven't looked at what your reviews are. You could easily be on either situation. That's what I'm saying. Um, well, I should say one thing. Um, yeah. You know, you've done a great job in giving people a lot of information on how to submit and what to include, and you know, so I think that is much better than other cases, and that would. And also encouraging people to submit. So I think that that's probably at the bottom of your difficulty of crying yourself to sleep at night. <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, the guy who gets the rejection, I'm sure he feels a lot worse. Well, I, 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 that's my point is to try to reach out and say, and say don't, fe don't feel bad about it. Do submit again. Don't feel like – because I've been there. I've been rejected. Uh, don't, don't worry, John. I like his friend, you know. <laughs> I'm just. Well, I'm saying, glad to hear that you you cry yourself to sleep, John, because I was rejected two years ago. And that's that's oh, what I'm, I'm not saying. Better. It's it's uh, yeah. Don't be like I say. I've made submissions and and you know there's a number of reasons why you can be. Uh, my, my view is if you're never getting rejected, you're you're not controversial enough. You're not saying enough. Huh? <laughs> so it's good to get rejected once in a while. It keep it no. It keep it, it lets you know that you're saying something that somebody doesn't like, which right. is probably a good thing. 
Well, one thing I would say is that one of the things that probably helps is to try to say something that is a little bit different than what everybody else is saying. That that kind of makes it a little more distinct and and helps it stand out. I'm not saying deliberately be, you know, provocative or something like that, but but do think about yeah, yeah, there's nothing wrong with being provocative if you feel like um but don't be provocative just to be provocative. Be provocative if you say, I've noticed People tend to have this point of view, and I just don't see that. Here's my point of view, and I can explain why that's why that's. Well, I, I have to say one of the the since I'm on the committee, I saw all the presentations that I wanted to see, and one I I thought was tremendously intriguing was. Please don't mention any gl- specific names. <laughs> no, I won't. It was uh, well, I can, I mean, it's just my personal opinion, you know, which counts for nothing. Yeah. Uh, that global something about globals being your friend or something like that. And it was such a heterodoxy. I thought, hey, this I got to see. So, <laughs> you know, that's I think stuff like that is interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it'll and, probably get rejected. Oh, well. Well, I, it may or may not. And if it is or isn't, it may not be because it was provocative. It may be for some other reason. Yeah. Again, what I got to tell you is when we look at these, there's just, you know, there's just an awful lot that are right on the bubble. and. Part of it is because I know so many people personally, that makes it really hard too, because it's not just a question of evaluating the content because we want to look at the speaker. The speaker is an important part of it. We want speakers that are engaging and interesting and uh, present well and have a lot of experience. We also want to have new voices. It's, it's, really, hard. it's really hard. And that's part of the reason why um, I cry myself to sleep because part of it is that we do kind of want to have a mix. In other words, we we could just look at it and say, well, who who are the best speakers year after year? And we'll just go with them. And that's not the right way to do it because what happens is you're not getting enough new people. Um, the way I look at it is it's kind of like the way you make investments, right? If if you if your portfolio, if you never lose money on any of your investments, then you're not being aggressive enough. You want to take some chances. And I feel the same way about speakers. If all of our speakers got really, really good reviews, it would mean that we're not taking enough chance on new speakers and things like that. Although I will say, um, we kind of like to, at CBBCon, we kind of like to use um, regional conferences and reach out to people who who have done well at regional conferences and and try to get them. Those are the ones that Phil was talking about. A lot of them are, um, uh, a lot of the conferences in Europe are, are focused on their own country or their own region. And if we can find good speakers there, then it's kind of best of both worlds. It's a new voice for us, but they have demonstrated that they're a good speaker. So that's, that's good. Um, you're still, uh, uh, um, Phil Nash, you're still in the process of, of accepting your deadline is a ways away, right? Uh, end of this month, actually, we're now into July it's the end of July. So I think it's a good time to actually start chasing people. Yeah. 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 Um, how many, uh, how many speakers are you looking for? How many sessions are you thinking? Is this a, a three day? Your three days? So it's uh, two days of the main conference, or three tracks on each day. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't have the f- figures in front of me, but I think, I think I need about 25 slots. That sounds like an odd number. So <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Um, m- maybe 26. I think I worked out I need probably be around 23 speakers allowing for, you know, at least a couple of people doing two. Uh-huh. But we'll see how that works out. But, of course, you have the advantage that you go to a lot of conferences and you've seen a lot of speakers yes. in action. Um, and so I assume you're reaching out to them. But I also assume you want to hear some new voices as well, right? Oh, absolutely. In fact, a big part of uh, the, whole, the conference as a whole, and particularly the, uh, the, the call for speakers, is I want to try and appeal to a more um, a diverse range of speakers. I mean, everyone says this anyway, so it's not like it's anything new, but because it's a first-time conference, uh, there's no real history to, to hold me down as well. So uh, really appealing to people from, from all backgrounds, whether you've spoken before or not, to, to come and speak C++ on the C, and we'll do everything we can to support you. I'm sorry, I was distracted by the chat room and somebody is quoting their <laughs> rejection to acceptance ratio is roughly 10 to 1. Uh, that's, I can see why that's pretty discouraging. <laughs> um, but um, I do want to ask you, um, uh, Phil Williams, uh, how many of your speakers 
are local? How many of them are from either New Zealand or Australia? And, and how many had come from outside of there? So in terms of submissions is maybe four or five from Europe, uh, one from, from the United States, uh, one from Asia, and the rest are from Australia and New Zealand. Mm-hmm. So that's mostly local. Mostly local. With uh, with some interest, and 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 with two keynotes coming in from from the US. Yeah, we've also got two special guests as well. Um, Have they been announced? James McNellis from the US. Yep, and Kate Gregory from Canada. Okay. All right. Um, so, how many of the locals? spoke last year i guess what i'm trying to figure out is is are are you building up some local recognition for some of the speakers um trying to not many of the people from last year submitted again this year oh i'm not sure on reasons people are busy things have changed that sort of stuff yeah yeah but there were a few people that had submitted again though uh, one question I have, since New Zealand is pretty hard to get to for most of us, and uh, is, isn't, doesn't that dissuade a lot of people? That's the first part. And the other thing is, um, is it not attractive to, say, reach out to uh, countries in uh, Asia that have a, you know, a large group of uh, programmers, uh, China and India and uh, Hong Kong and Japan, for example, I, I, I'm under the impression that those places are a lot closer to New Zealand than the rest of us are. Yes, so uh, moving this the one this year to Sydney is they've got an airport where you can fly directly from a lot of places. Uh, I'm doing my best to reach out to those countries you've mentioned, and ho- hopefully there'll be good attendance from those countries as well. This is one of the things that Anastasia shared her research that she did prior to um, prior to JetBrains working on Sea Lion and found that the number of C++ programmers in Asia is, it, it was astounding to me. It, it's, uh, I think, on the order of a million, a million C++ programmers in Asia. So I did reach out to her. I said, should we do a conference in Asia? And she said, well, um, they don't have the same income. So it's not as easy for them to travel to conferences as it is for people in the U.S. and uh, and Europe. And so that's that and the fact that I would be completely over my head in trying to figure out how to run a conference in Asia. <laughs> so it never happened. <laughs> well, wouldn't, it, wouldn't the speakers have to learn to speak Australian? Or... <laughs> <laughs> we have simultaneous translators. <laughs> Can we turn it on? <laughs> So there is a, a large C++ conference in, in China, in uh, Beijing, I believe. And I, um, I think that is all in um, uh, well, one of the Chinese languages. And they, they do have live translators when people do come in from, from outside of China. Uh, I've not been there myself. I don't know too much more about it. But uh, I know that there are quite a few international speakers that do go there. Right. So I've talked to Jason. Uh, uh, Jason Lee is the guy that runs that. Um, and... This year, the conference is in Beijing. Last year, it was in Shanghai. Right. And they they did have it a few years before that. And what he told me, we talked before the Beijing conference, and he said that his plan now is to have it every year. He actually runs a training company. And so the uh, the conference is kind of a way of promoting the training company. And, and when he brings speakers over, kind of the keynote speakers, he will often have them do like um, a training class before the conference or something like that. Um, and so, um, uh, and they did in fact have uh, uh, translators. I think in at the Shanghai conference, they did simultaneous translation, but I think at the Beijing conference, they did it um, where there was a, um, the, the speaker would pause and there'd be translation, which scared me because I think I would be terrible at trying to do that. I would, it would take me out of my rhythm. I don't think I would be a very good speaker if I had to stop every few sentences. <laughs> Can I interrupt you there a minute, John? Yeah. All right, carry on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, um, I'll let you talk to Kate about this because she was the, the keynote speaker um, in Beijing or one of them. 
Um, and, mm-hmm. and she shared a little bit about the experience and she said it was a little bit, um, she was also concerned how accurate the translation was. She said, I would put my slide up and I would say something. And then I would hear in the translation, I would hear a word like, um, uh, polymorphic, which I hadn't used. It wasn't on the slide and I didn't say it. And yet the translator mentioned polymorphic twice in explaining my slide. And so she was a little, uh, (laughs) a little concerned about how accurate the translation was. (laughs) But anyway, um, so I'm glad to hear that uh I'm glad to hear that th- these are uh these are going off well. Um what uh what what challenges did you have in transitioning across the international border because you did it first in New Zealand and then in Australia? Uh the biggest challenge there was working at how the accounting and that sort of stuff works taxes in different countries and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. In terms of organization New Zealand and Australia are pretty similar countries. So there's not much different in the way things work there. Mm-hmm. Did, did you work? Do, are you working with a, a hotel or a, a venue that has lodging associated with it? Uh, no. So the conference is at an auditorium, uh-huh. and they they have hotels nearby which they suggest. So it's not in a hotel. But you didn't uh, you didn't have to sign a hotel block then. No, that's got to no. be great. I would love to be able to run a conference where <laughs> where you're not worrying about filling the hotel block. Yeah, interesting enough, the one the first year was the same situation. It wasn't a hotel, but they they don't require any booking of the rooms. Really? So may, maybe it just works differently over here. It it certainly does because I um, yeah uh, I suppose you probably have different challenges, but that was that's a challenge that we have in trying to. We have, at CPPCon, of course, we have seven different hotels, and we have agreements with all those hotels, and we have to fill rooms in all of those hotels. And that's uh, that's something that is a concern for us. Yeah, I assume that, seeing I don't have to do that, I'll be paying for it otherwise? Yeah, that is one of the, one of the advantages of it, is that the actual space that we rent is it's pretty reasonable for what we're getting. Um, yeah. It's because we're, because we're, as you say, paying for it otherwise. Um, uh, what about you, uh, Phil Nash, you are, you're in a hotel that's right on the edge of the sea. Uh, so the venue itself is a theater. Oh, it's a theater. Yeah. So it doesn't have any accommodation in it, but there are, um, a number of hotels immediately opposite. So, you know, 30 seconds walk mm-hmm. and then a little bit further there, there's even more. It's, uh, quite a large, uh, seaside town. So there is a lot of tourism in the area. And because it's off-season, I'm hoping mm-hmm. that that's going to mean there's going to be plenty of availability. But I will be uh, booking uh, some up front just to make mm-hmm. sure that we get definitely the speakers in and, and some of the, the attendees mm-hmm. will be guaranteed as well. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Um, one of the things I wanted to get back to now that Robert's joined us again is get back to this issue about what we're doing um, about the standard and accepting libraries. Uh, Phil, you were you were at the standard in Rappersville, the standard meeting in Rappersville. Um, what uh, did you were you in the library group or in language? I spent most of my time in the um, in the language group uh, EWG. Okay. Uh, apart from a couple of sessions in LEWG, so I was in the room when uh, Biana did revisit the "Remember the Vasa" mm-hmm. quote. Mm-hmm. So you, you could say that uh, it was "Remember, Remember the Vasa." <laughs> So I think it was it was quite apt. He he brought it up at a point where I can't remember exactly what the context was, but it was definitely where we were thinking about bringing more things into into the standard than than a lot of people were comfortable with. Yeah, I can't remember the exact context of that now. Maybe someone in the chat recalls that. Well, so one of the things that I'm concerned about when we people talk about this is that I don't know that the number of proposals itself is necessarily I mean, it, it's a metric about what the committee can handle because it's it's true. If you have lots of papers, that's a problem. But I don't know that's necessarily a problem for users if the scope of those papers are, here's this little thing that we could do a little bit better. And sometimes if you look at the net language, it actually goes away. We've had proposals where I think, I think it was uh, 
treating void as a regular type. That was one of the things where void is an exception in all these situations. And if you accept that proposal, it actually shortens the standard because you go in and all these places where it says accept void, you just take that out because now void's not an exception anymore. And I think that's the kind of situation where it is possible to have papers that actually simplify the standard by removing exceptions and to make things more consistent and things like that. So the number of proposals by itself is not necessarily a problem. The problem is when people are trying to solve their daily problem by pushing it off on the standard. And then you get these, oh, we're going to add this new facility that does this one little thing. And that gets enshrined, particularly if that's part of the language, which is, I mean, something's in the library, you can kind of ignore it. But if it's in the language, it's sometimes harder to ignore. Yeah, and I think it is it's more to do with the, the, the language evolution that um, Bjarne's um, concern, at least, was aimed at. At least that was my reading of it. Yeah. Because see, the, the library, you can, you can add things in and you can ignore them if you don't need them. But the language, every change of the language affects the other, every other part of the language, potentially. You're right. Speaking to that particular point, you know, I, I look at contracts. Now, I, I have a lot of reservations. I don't think contracts work well with C++. But aside from that, I don't see anything <laughs> con uh, contracts that requires a change in the language. It seems to me to be totally implemented as a library. Matter of fact, there is already a Boost library that implements contracts. So what's uh, why? What's the value added by this? Uh, there's other the, the uh, ranges is a really interesting one. It's sort of been crafted by Eric Niebler and the Standards Committee, and it in order to make it what he wanted it to be, it has to it includes Meta, which is a whole meta programming language module. It includes I forget the name of it, an implementation of concepts, which is particular to his package there. Uh, and then, of course, everybody's chimed in and added their own little doodads. So it's a perfect example of something that should not be in the standard, in my view. And uh, I talked to him about, why didn't you put it into Boost? He said, you know, it's too much work. <laughs> well, and, you know, uh, I, you know, at that point, I'm kind of speechless because I don't know what to say. So there we are. And I think that those are the worst examples of a lot of stuff that is on that list. Well, I want to say something about that. How many of those things that you just mentioned leak into the interface? I mean, if he's got his own version of uh, of a meta library, that doesn't necessarily, that's, a, that's an implementation decision, right? I mean, that's not necessarily leaking into the interface. Well, you know, that's an interesting question. Is Are the people, if that's accepted as a standard, are all the the, the vendors going to be adding in that implementation and kind of interesting as well. In the meantime, uh, Peter Dimoff inspired, I think in part at least by uh, Eric Niebler's uh, decision made MP11, which is own take on, um, on uh, template meta programming facilities or, a, or a, a, a meta library. Now, Peter Dimoff is pretty well respected in this area and so, but the committee decided not to spend time on it because it's, you know, uh, one more metaprogramming library and they kind of don't have time to deal with them all. So now we're going to get one, which is or is not, I don't know if any details in the interface leak through, but, uh, you know, it's just something that it just is not a match with the networking thing. They've decided to put it on hold till they get executors squared away. Meanwhile, for years, we've already been working with ASIO. What possible benefit is it going to be for the standard to, after the fact, create a, a, a networking library? So, you know, the whole thing to me is bass-ackwards here. And, well, I think, uh, I, I think people are underestimating the value of actually having the working library. In other words... Um, There's no question about that. The question is, do they have to come through the standards process? Is that the right vehicle for producing these things and for and for guaranteeing that these things work? And I'm arguing that the process of standardization is too cumbersome to bring the stuff we need to market or to availability in a timely manner. Well, I'm less concerned about that than than that if. If you are actually developing a library 
saying you're going to put it into Boost and you're going to have thousands and thousands and thousands of users, you're solving problems that you might not have realized you needed to solve. And I think that that's what someone looking at something, I mean, even, and I don't want to, I don't know very much about Eric or the Rangers library, but I'm assuming that um, he's, he's probably testing this with uh, Microsoft's compiler as well as GCC and Clang. But that's not the same thing as actually shipping this to have thousands of users banging on it and reporting bugs on it and making it that kind of quality and thinking about that. You know, but it, it sounds like you're agreeing with me. No, no. Well, but I'm, I'm agreeing with the thrust, but, I, but my concern is something a little bit different. I mean, you're saying that you think that the standards process is too cumbersome. But what I'm saying is I think the standards process is, um, I'm not saying it's not cumbersome enough, but it's not, it's not a replacement for actually having a working shipping library. I mean, this is one of the advantages of working in library, right? I mean, if I'm, tr- if I'm working on some new language feature, what can I do? I mean, maybe I can implement it in Clang, but I can't really ship that language feature and say, please test this out. In the library world, that's exactly what we can do. We can, in fact, have thousands and thousands of users, but, but we only, only have that if we insist on it. If instead we say, write up a, new, a proposal, and I'm a brilliant engineer, I can read your proposal, I'll look at the interface, and I can imagine how it's implemented, and I can just bless it and say, there it is, that's good. And that's the same thing as looking at the Boost library description and, and look at that interface and say, well, there's things that I don't like about it, but it's okay too. There's a huge difference in quality, and it's not obvious. And the smartest person in the room isn't going to be able to foresee all the problems, the real-world problems that happen when you actually deliver this. And what happens is these things get dumped in the, in the implementer's lap. You know, it's, it's Marshall's problem and it's STL's problem and Jonathan Wakeley's problem. And if they can't solve it, then they come back to the committee and say, you know, this was unclear or we need to change this or do something else, which is all fine. That's the way it should be. But the problem is that that means we accepted something without having recognized all the problems. And in the language world, there's nothing we can do about that. You know, if, if somebody says, well, here's this new cool, you know, proposal to extend lambdas in some interesting way, and we give it as much thought as we possibly can, we see it implemented in one implementation, or maybe we put it in TS or something like that, we try to get some real world experience, and if, if we can't do it, we can't do it. There's nothing we can do about that. But in the library world, there is something we can do about that. We can say, no, we don't accept libraries that don't have thousands and thousands of users. And and those need to be different users. If it's from a company, and there's some big companies that are, in fact, uh, have people in the committee, and they're talking about their libraries and submitting them, but I don't think that that looking at the number of users in a company that have either the same or very similar uh, coding guidelines that are doing something around a certain kind of domain, that's... That's not a wide variety of users. It may be numerically. It may be, oh, my company has, you know, 500 C++ programmers, but that's not the same thing as 500 different users from 500 different projects trying it out under all sorts of different conditions on different platforms trying to do different things. My understanding was that the original goal of the committee was to standardize existing practice. It seems to me that in recent years it's moved beyond that, and, um, and especially as far as libraries are concerned. So I think you're preaching to the choir, at least as far as I'm concerned. I think you're wrong when you say in recent years. It has never been about standardizing existing practice. I mean, that's that's the goal of standardization in general. But think about it. Well, maybe what, I'm wrong on that. that you know, that was have, kind of my impression, but I don't – I never attend committee meetings. So I, I don't – I, don't I mean, think know. about the, when C++ originally came out, um, what were the things that were put in the standard that were um, that were new to the standard? Namespaces. Was that an existing practice? No, nobody was using namespaces till it was in the standard. And that was a language feature. I'm talking about libraries. Oh, library features. Yeah. Well, that's that is a different situation because, um, but even then, the biggest single library implementation was the STL, but that didn't have any users. That was a research project. I mean, I should say literally. Well, that's an interesting question whether it should have been added to the standards. I think a more interesting one is the C++ I/O library. Uh, stream uh, IO library, which now people complain about. But on the other hand, that was conjured up, I think, in the committee and designed by the committee. I'm, I'm not really, I don't really know, but uh, I think that it's, it, it has a special 
it, it, it has more in tune with the latest ideas with networking and ranges, et cetera, than it does with, for example, incorporating the boost libraries, which were already done. So uh, anyway, I, I, think, I don't think committees design stuff very well. Basically, that's my complaint. I'm and not sure what you mean by that. I mean, this, the streams library was originally done by Bjarne. I mean, that was, are you talking about the IO? I'm thinking, I'm thinking the IO stream and my, my, the name I associated with it is with Nathan Myers, but I could be wrong on that too. Well, I mean, so he did, um, I think he, he, I think he came up with, uh, the, the concept of traits. I mean, he did a lot of work on standardizing, but the, but the streams library, that was part of Seafront. I mean, that was, that predates the standards committee. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been any I/O for C or C Well, sure, there was the CIO was always available, so it could no. But what I meant was the streams. The streams classes predate the standard. Bjarni had done that. Okay, well, I don't know. You what, know, I I, they, I I thought that was part of the standards process, but well, I'm, I think I'm certainly biggest, willing to be, you know, told I'm wrong on that. I think the biggest it was thing evolved that, a bit in the standard process. What's that? It was evolved a bit during the standards process. Right. I think the biggest thing was added was probably international support. I think that was the biggest thing. Oh yeah. Well, um, then you got facets and you got a whole layer of complexity, yeah, which yeah, 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 yeah. now people denigrate. Oh, yeah, yeah. People are not pleased with how it was done, but but it was done, and it seemed at the time like a good idea. You know, <laughs> um, It's like the story of my life, man. <laughs> but, but no, I think that um, the, only, the only place you can point to with the standard adapting existing practice is to look at boost libraries and say, yeah, some of these boost libraries were accepted. But language-wise, it always has to be. We have the TSs to take on that role. When we need experience out in the field with your language feature or, or a big library, then yeah. we put it in the TS. Right. Unfortunately, there hasn't been a lot of adoption. And I think part of it is that people don't appreciate if you really, if you want to put something in a TS and then say, okay, let's get some real world experience with this then that means you have to let it go for five years, right? I mean, you can't say, well, six months from now, we'll revisit it and see what the pioneers that looked at it, what they did. That's not, that's not giving you what you really need. And I think most people are way, way, way too impatient to actually appreciate if you're going to put this in the TS, you're not going to have results in six months. I mean, if that's what you're really doing it for. Now, there are people, I've talked to people in the standard who say, no, 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 the whole point of a TS is not for users to get experience. It's for implementers to get experience. So we put something in the TF and TS, excuse me, and then um, the Visual Studio team or the LLVM team or the GNU team, they play with it and, and they come back and tell us if the, if the standard is a valid requirements document. And then we get experience from that. But we don't want to wait for users because we don't know what kind of user adoption there will be. We don't know how good the user feedback will be. We don't trust the users and we're too impatient. <laughs> so um, I'm skeptical of this. I'm, you know, I'm impatient too. I want to get stuff in the standard, but I would rather get it right. And so I'm probably very patient from that point of view. Um, I, would, I would be willing to wait a long time and get but my, my My impression of the, um, the language evolution group when I was yeah. there in uh, Rappersville was though. Obviously, there were the big ticket items like uh, concepts and coroutines and uh, modules. Uh, they've all been through the, the TS process. Then we have a lot of um, small, simple things that are really sort of fixes to, to existing uh, features or, or maybe just small features that will simplify a large part of the language. And then there were, you know, a few things that were, as you said, that if someone's, this will make my life easier without really necessarily thinking across the board. Both didn't tend to get very far. So I think I think the process is working. We're, we're getting things that make the language simpler, easier to work with, or move it forward in in big ways that that we really need, while filtering out a lot of the stuff that that may end up in the remember the Vasa situation. Um, I'm not saying we've got no danger there, but I think it is mostly working. Well, I'm this? I'm 70 years old, so get on it. <laughs> So uh, I, uh, I saw the Vasa Museum in, um, in Sweden while we were there. And it is one of the best museums, just as a museum. They've done an excellent job. You'd think, um, so for people who don't know the, the story, the Vasa was yeah. this big ship commissioned by the king of Sweden because um, 
he wanted to he was becoming a navy power and he wanted to take it to Poland uh because Poland was kind of the other big navy power. And so he commissioned this warship that was larger than any other warship. And what was different about the Vasa is that it was to have two decks of guns. And I don't know if other ships in the world did probably, but but no ship made at the at the Swedish navy yard had had ever been made that way. And the the people knew how to make ships said, okay, we'll just add another deck. And essentially it was poorly designed from that point of view. So what happened is it's very top heavy, um, not wide enough and didn't have enough weight in the bottom. And so what happens is um, shortly after it's made, while it has not even gone on its maiden voyage, they do a test. And what they do is they have a bunch of sailors on one side of the ship, run to the other side of the ship and then run back and see if they can get the ship, you know, test it for stability. And it failed the test. It didn't fall over. What happened was they started, they told the sailors, stop running, because they were afraid it was going to capsize the ship. And, uh, but they just ignored the result of that. And so what happens is on its maiden voyage, it doesn't even really make it out into the ocean. It's still in the harbor area. And it gets a good wind, and it starts going back and forth, and it sinks. And it sinks in such shallow water that I think part of the mast was actually exposed. It didn't, you know, it wasn't completely sunk. They knew where it was because they could see it. Um, And uh, as I say, the museum is this amazing experience. And one of the things that that totally amazed me is that they actually did a very primitive version of diving because the guns on this ship were so expensive and so valuable that they would send divers down um, in these um, metal um, diving bells and they reclaimed all the the guns, which is uh, what what those divers physically had to uh, do at that depth is just amazing to me. Um, anyway, uh, so that's the story of the Vasa. It was uh, it's not like it um, it's it's not a good analogy. Every time I hear people say "remember the Vasa," I don't understand because it was ill designed. It was a failure of design. But it wasn't ill-designed because people kept saying, oh, let's add this and let's put this on and let's put this on. No, it was just they, they tried to do one thing too much. They tried to put on two decks worth of guns and they didn't understand all the physics involved and it failed. I don't think that's a good analogy at all. We are trying to add lots of stuff. If I can quote from uh, Biana's uh, paper, um, P0977R0, remember the Vasa. He says, uh, hardly any paper, talking about all the, the proposals for, for Rapperswell, hardly any paper contains extensive discussions of the proposed features' effect in combination with other new features, existing features, and libraries in ordinary code, written by ordinary programs. Few present details of experience of use or teaching. Hardly any contain a serious discussion of objections raised. Every proposal is subject to the law of unexpected consequences, and there will be unexpected consequences. That does sound to be... Uh, very much in line with the, the story you just told. Well, except except that the problem is that the I think the reason the, the analogy falls apart is because it's the difference between what what Bjarni is actually pushing back on is he's saying there's all these different papers pulling in all these different directions. That wasn't the vastest problem. Uh, there is a similarity in just that they didn't understand all the implications of what they were doing. That is that part's valid. Okay. I think it is fair to say that people do um, misquote Remember the Vasa, though. Well, the analogy, no analogy is perfect, but it's certainly good enough for government work. <laughs> well, and, it's, and what you have is that if you don't like a proposal, then you can label it with all these things and say, well, you haven't done enough to think about how you're going to teach this and you haven't thought about all the other things. And then if you like the proposal, you say, well, we're in a hurry. We don't want to wait. This is too cumbersome a process. Let's put it in. And- My response is simpler. Yeah, just implement it and put it in boost and then uh, wait for it to be compelling. Wait for users to insist on it. That's okay. Reason. That that certainly works for me. Um, but that only works, works for libraries. For libraries, yes. And not oh, sure yeah, yeah. No language. question about that. I don't want to go into the language thing. I, I, I agree is outside the scope of that recommendation. Right. And I, I think there's, there's issues with the, the committee scaling. That is just a problem. Um, it, it's, it's already a situation where the most knowledgeable people 
um, particularly in the library issue, the most knowledgeable people are those people who have implemented or are implementing the standard library, and those people are not in the evolution group at all. And I understand why, because we want them in the uh, in the in the final library group to get the wording right. That's very important. They are the ones who have that set of skills, and it's much harder for people uh, to fake that, if you will, or to, you know who don't have that skills to to fill that role. But the problem is we don't have their guidance in evolution. And I think that part of the way to scale, try to scale the committee is, I mean, right now we have evolution group and then a, and then a core group, whether it's core library, core language. We, um, one way to do this is to add another committee to the process. We could have a feeder committee, which is somewhat how SG14 is kind of working. A lot of proposals end up in SG14 and then they get discussed, and then they go to either library or language evolution, right? So there's kind of a, an extra level. But what that means, again, is that we're further diluting our expertise at that level and not giving the kind of guidance that we'd like to give. It, it's just a problem. We need, to, um, we need to get Howard and Richard and clone them, I guess. <laughs> I think that the study groups are an important part of that process, and I think they are um, proving valuable. Oh, no, it's the only way we're going to scale. Not a total solution. but No, no, that's, I, I, I'm yeah. completely on, on board with that. That's the only way we will be able to scale. Um, and, and I think that's how it has to happen, is we need to, we need to defer more things to study groups, and study groups need to be more discerning about what they want to pass on to evolution. And I suppose the question is, do we have uh, enough representation on the standards committee from the Pacific region? <laughs> what do you think, Phil? Um, I'm not too sure myself, but I know there's a few guys. Um, Krista Bell is very interested in thinking about that sort of stuff. Right. Yeah, so m- maybe we need to start thinking about holding a, a committee meeting down under. Well, we have one in we- Hawaii. That's not that far from there. In fact, we have one in Hawaii about every three years. <laughs> You know, every three years we get this whole long song and dance about how everybody went to Hawaii, but nobody got to do anything because they're cooped up in a room without air conditioning for a week. And like, we're supposed to feel really sorry for them and eat this up. You know, I, I'm, I'm not buying it. Oh, I, I am because I went to Kona and I will say I went with my wife and we took a day off. We did go to the beach, but, but I was in the minority. Almost everybody there really was there from early in the morning until late at night. And I will also tell you that, yes, it is, you know, there are nice ocean breezes and all this, but it is not air conditioned. It, it was, um, I have a lot more respect for committee members having gone to that particular meeting because they were really dedicated in a situation where it was really easy to say, you know, I'm going to take the afternoon off and go to the beach because, you know, I promised my wife, we are going to do that. We will take a day and we will go to the beach. And we did. And it was a lot of fun other than the fact that I broke my toe. Uh, but other than that, it was great. Um, but most of the people who were at the committee didn't do that. They were there every single day and they were there early and they were there until, as I said, I mean, they go out, go out to eat and then come back and they had presentations in the evening as well. It was, uh, I mean... You can imagine it being worse if it was in, you know, Boise, Idaho in the middle of winter, but it was, it was not a picnic. And when, when people say, you know, if they're crying and saying, that was terrible, I had to go to Hawaii. Yeah, okay, that's a little over much. But if they're telling you that they just worked, uh, well, I'll ask Phil. Uh, Rapperswell is not exactly Hawaii, but what did you see? Were they goofing off or were they working? Well, we, we did work from early in the morning till late at night. With, with very few breaks. But there was an opportunity to, to get outside, take advantage of, of the fresh air. Uh, we were right next to the lake. Uh, bright sunshine. We, had, we were really lucky with the weather that week. It wasn't quite Hawaii, but it was, it, was, it was very nice. So I really enjoyed the time there just, just in terms of visiting. It wasn't a holiday by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. But uh, we did appreciate the setting. I've not been to, to Kona, so I can't compare. But and I did enjoy going to, to Vrap as well. Yeah. Like I said, I'm not going to cry and say, oh, it was terrible, it was awful. But I will say that the people were there were not partying. It was, uh, 
it was as as Phil says, not a holiday. It was work, um, and um, I have a lot of respect for for the people who were there, and 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 the committee in general. You just look at how much they do get accomplished. It's the number of papers they have to wade through. It's very clear that nobody's reading all those papers. It just physically isn't possible. Nobody's reading all those papers, um, and I I kind of do wonder how people who are really at the core of this are doing that and and trying to keep up because they need to be, you know, I'm talking about the people who are like uh, the the evolution group chairs or the core group chairs and really trying to stay on top of all these papers. It's very clear they can't be reading them all in detail. It just isn't possible. I mean, these, these are also people who have, you know, real jobs. They're writing code at their companies as well. It, you know, the the committee is never a full-time job for anybody. And, of course, they're submitting to conferences. And they're submitting to a conferences, attending conferences, speaking at conferences, yeah. Um, it's uh, very challenging. Yeah, I, I must say I have to agree. I, I, I don't know how they do it. Um, it's just unbelievable to me. I think part of it is that the papers aren't getting the scrutiny they need to get, and that's kind of a problem. Well, and that's why I think you, you guys talk about scaling the process. I think the process is not scalable without a major change. That that was really the thrust of the discussion the other day. Um, so, and I don't see anybody talking about making any real changes except just a little nibbling around the edges. So that's kind of what the discrepancy is here. So we at we kind of have a a consensus that some change needs to happen in order to scale, but nobody really knows what that change needs to be. Well, no, I think that people thinking are underestimating the amount of change required. That's what I'm thinking. Oh, I see. I see. Well, were there people who were saying, no, things are okay? Well, no, it's really just like you guys, you know, we need another committee or we need to find a way to, to do this or I, I don't, or maybe a committee that screens stuff or, uh, but nobody's really cut down the list of tasks that the committee is now being charged with. And for example, I might say a rule. If it can be implemented as a library, it we should require a fully implemented library and with some experience, and then we either accept it or reject it. That would eliminate half the proposals right there. That would scale back the 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 mandate for the committee and that would produce a real change but to just say we're going to work a a little bit harder and we're going to change a couple of procedures i i I think that it's just we're just going to find that the next time the subject is is visited it's even worse than it is now that's my that's really my point i think it requires it's going to require a more radical change that people uh, want to want to accept i think that's my my concern but do we know what the shape of that radical change? Well, that's the problem. Since it has to be a consensus and we can't agree, then we'll keep <laughs> doing what we've been doing until it gets to the point where people drop out of the process. Well, I'm not. I'm not even talking about getting agreement. What I'm saying is, I don't. I haven't seen a proposal. I haven't heard anybody say, "Look, this will all work if we did this." Yeah. Except maybe what you're saying, which is to change the mission to say. We don't accept anything. I, I just included my link for a proposal, but anyway, that would be a whole other subject. So, <laughs> yeah. So, well, volunteer, John. Just click on, just click on that, and that's that's a proposal. But anyway, we don't. I think it's it's been noted. It's time to wrap up, so we're just yeah. going to have to yeah. just going to have to be in mystery that much more time. Right. Um, I think I think it's true. We are not going to solve this today. I don't think we expected to. But I think it's something that we all need to be aware of and talk about. The standards process is um, is enough of a enough of an issue by itself that that Bjarni did write the paper. Remember the Vasa. I mean, clearly the leadership of the committee is is feeling that something's wrong. Um, you know, Bjarni Bjarni feels like part of the issue is just stay focused on a smaller number of issues. Um, and I'm not sure that's, I'm not sure that's the solution, but uh, it's clear that there's a wide spread feeling that something's wrong, that that we are that we are past a point that we're scaling comfortably. I totally totally in agreement. I think that uh, uh, that, that the, the the mandate has to be 
they scaled back the number of things the committee takes responsibility for has to be uh, diminished and they have to find other ways to vet libraries outside the working of the committee. Uh, there's a whole lot of issues associated with that. So um, we need a better marketplace. We need a better way of incorporating libraries. Of, um, but they, they're talking about packaging. Even the build situation is really not satisfactory. So we've got all sorts of problems and they would they make our current problems with the standard worse. So you know it just it just requires new ideas and more work and but it's not a question of doing what we've been doing but working harder at it that's true um so phil uh do we uh um i guess what i would say is the work our work is cut out for us just talking to them, right i mean having there's plenty of issues to talk about in packaging in uh in uh, build and packaging and also in uh, libraries being approved and vetted and tested. There's tons of stuff for us to talk about. Oh yeah, we've got a job for life here. <laughs> but I think we're going to. That's wrap easy it up for me to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or I guess for me it's afternoon. I'm not sure what time it is um, for you, Phil. Uh, what time is it for you, uh, Phil Nash? It's uh, ten past ten in the evening here. Okay, which is summertime. And for you, uh, Phil Williams. Uh, Ten past nine in the morning. All right. Monday morning. Should I? Monday. Oh, Monday. Oh, oh, wow. Okay. So, um, so I guess uh, Robert and I have it easy at at two o'clock in the afternoon, right? All right. So we need to wrap this up. We need to wish everybody safe coding. Uh, I want to thank you guys both for being on. Um, I hope Robert, you don't feel like I'm uh, taking advantage of you too much, taking for granted that you'll come on and rant. I do appreciate that you have an original point of view and you've changed the way I think about important things. And that's why I, I really appreciate having you. You on. know, I could fill five of these sessions, you know, just like just extemporaneously, you know, so uh, there you go. And nobody listens to me here at home. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a relief for me. <laughs> All right. Well, um, thank both of you, Phil's, for being on and talking about your conferences. Thank I, you. Uh, I uh, uh, am pulling strongly for you. I hope they work out well, partly because when you guys discover great new speakers, I'm going to be the first one in line to encourage them to come to CPPCon. <laughs> <laughs> it's the way it works. It's the way it works. All right. Well, um, in that case, I'm going to um, wish all you guys safe coding and... Uh, and ask you to wish all our viewers safe coding. Safe coding. Safe coding.